Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom on WMNF Tampa. Um, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is taxpayer John Dunn, Tampa taxpayer John Dunn, that is. If you want to join our conversation today, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and John Dunn will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's Wavemaker is a business executive, arts advocate, and founder of a weekly community forum. Bill Carlson is also entering the final months of his first term as a Tampa City Council member representing South Tampa and Harbor Island. Bill is president of Tucker Hall, a communications consulting firm in Ybor City. He was elected to the City Council in 2019, where he has been a strong voice for neighborhoods and a frequent critic of Mayor Jane Castor's policy on policing, water, and community redevelopment. Welcome to the show, Bill. Good morning. Thank you. Appreciate being here today. So, Bill, let's talk first about your work at Tucker Hall and your work as a community leader uh, long before you were elected to the city council, which we'll get to later. Uh, you had an impressive, impressive portfolio that included boosting international trade, improving Tampa International Airport, and normalizing relations with Cuba. Tell us what drew you to those subjects. My, I grew up in Florida. I'm fifth generation Floridian, and my passion is helping Florida to be better. And I look at our PR firm as a for-profit social enterprise. So we give a lot of time away on important projects and we um, also donate to and sponsor many, many things in the community. Uh, because my passion is Florida, I'm always looking at ways to make the lives of Floridians better. And so um, as over the years, we've worked on lots of the projects that you mentioned, everything from building downtown St. Pete to uh, uh, reforming our airport back in 2010. And that's been a big thing for you is regional cooperation, actually, and, and bridging the bay and bringing together Tampa and St. Pete, Pinellas, and Hillsborough. Talk to us a little bit about that. Why is that important? Yeah, when I came back, I, the Rotary Clubs in this area sponsored me in 1989. That dates me a little bit. Um, but they sponsored me to go overseas, all expenses paid. And so I picked Singapore because it was far away and also because Singapore was ranked the best economy in the world, the most competitive economy. And I wanted to learn ideas and bring them back. I ended up uh, not only studying the Singapore model, but also working as a consultant, Singapore government and others in Asia. But when I came back, uh, 94, one of the first clients I worked on was promoting downtown St. Pete. And it was a time when St. Pete was empty, lots of beautiful buildings, but there were not many people or, or businesses downtown. And what I saw in talking to the people in St. Pete is that there was an emerging arts community and so um, I worked with uh, the groups that were already there. And what we did is we helped the city of St. Pete accelerate the growth of the arts community and got worldwide publicity exposure for St. Pete as, a, as an arts community. Um, two years later, um, uh, a young African-American person was shot and uh, there were um, several days of protests. And I realized that you can't just focus on a downtown in a city. You have to focus on the entire city. And so I went back to graduate school to study um, uh race and poverty issues and figure out how we could find solutions to bring back to Tampa. Interesting. So um, you're talking about, tell me about some, that was a long time ago, 1989, that you went to Singapore. Um, tell us about how has Tampa changed since then and have you seen any of those concepts that you learned there implemented? 
in yeah, the Tampa Bay area. A key to the Singapore model, and by the way, over the years, uh, Panama, um, Dubai, um, to some extent, Abu Dhabi, Miami, all copied the Singapore model, and that is to be the regional hub of, um, of commerce and finance and travel and trade. And so two key elements of that were the port and the airport. And when I came back in 94, uh, George Bean, who had created Tampa Airport and had made it the model for the world, um, was uh, in his final two years. And then from 96, uh, someone else took over from 96 to 2010. Our airport went downhill. Most people didn't realize that our airport was about to become to Orlando like uh, St. Pete Airport is to Tampa. We had lost about 60% of our international flights. And our, um, our airport was looking tired because it hadn't been renovated. And so a group of us, uh, Jason Busto and I with Steve Burton, who's now since passed away, um, led kind of a coup d'etat to bring in new management at the airport. And um, the new management uh, not only implemented our ideas, but put in their own. And they've done a fantastic job, partly with your help, Jan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did work there for eight years. And yeah, I mean, I know that well, that the link between the economic growth of a community and its um, international visitors, international travelers, connections to business, business growth, being able to get headquarters and businesses to be able to lo- relocate to an area like Tampa or St. Pete. They need to know, are they going to be able to have access to flights to be able to get all over, the, all over the world to their other offices, to their clients? So that's really important for the economic development of a community to have a robust airport. And even families, uh, when we were discussing international flights, so many people from Latin America came and said, why is it that I have to fly through Miami to mm-hmm. to which adds hours and hours and hours onto the trip. And now uh, Tampa Airport is adding back, has added back a lot of the nonstop flights that they used to have, and, and they're adding more. And the airport now sees itself as an economic engine for this uh, region. Um, and another one that you have focused on uh, more recently is the port of Tampa Bay, uh, trying to uh, change their focus in some ways using your outside influence because you're not on that board. So uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about what you're Yeah, and I wasn't the on the board of the airport authority either. We were just activists. I wasn't on city council yet either. Um, the the port, um, uh, our port has always called itself, quote unquote, Florida's largest port. That's because I think it was back in the 80s, the state allocated money to all the major ports and the other ports bought container cranes and we bought land. Mm-hmm. And so based on land, we have been seen as Florida's largest port. Uh, but while the other ports uh, ran away with the numbers, um, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and Jacksonville each have about a million containers a year. Um, LA has about 12 million. And uh, Tampa, until recently, we had 50,000. So we're trying to increase the, the number of containers because it's transformational. It adds high-quality, high high-paying, blue-collar jobs to our community, and it's a ec- huge economic engine. And you're seeing progress on that front? Yeah, they're adding... Before COVID, they were uh, they were getting close to 150, 200,000 containers a year, and um, COVID set them back. But now they're working toward it again. Now, what about the Cafe Con Tampa? Uh, that's another uh, thing you have focused on. You started that how long ago? Ten years ago? Or? The Cafe Con Tampa has been around about 15 years. It started as the Historic Hyde Park Neighborhood Association Land Use Committee breakfast, <laughs> and after a couple of years of being involved, I said, "Can we shorten the, the name?" And it's funny. Our aspiration was that if we could be citywide. Uh, that would be the biggest thing we could ever accomplish. And it's funny, now we've had people call from other countries and all around the U.S. trying to figure out how to, how to copy it. Had we called it something like Rotary, we could have franchised it by now. And the, for those of you who aren't familiar, Cafe Con Tampa is a weekly Friday morning forum that's held at the Oxford Exchange um, in downtown Tampa. And it 
there are speakers that are they're there. Speakers come from all over the region and all over the country. I think you have speakers. Yeah, that and are it, coming. it's the the purpose of it as I've helped evolve it is is what I call the democratization of information. Why should you have to pay five or ten thousand dollars a year to have access to the best speakers and and the best networking in town? Why not make it accessible to everyone? And so our format is that there's no membership. Um, it's twelve dollars to get in, uh, and there's a, a delicious buffet. breakfast. And if you can't afford the $12, you send us an email and say scholarship in the headline, and you automatically get in free, no questions asked. We want everybody to be able to participate. And although it's at the Oxford Exchange now, it's more humble roots. We're at uh, Hugo's Restaurant on mm-hmm. Howard Avenue, where you basically just bought your own coffee, your own breakfast, and you know you passed a hat to try to cover some of the expenses. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest is Tampa City Council Member Bill Carlson. Um, when you were talking, if you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email to dj at wmnf.org. Bill, when you were talking about St. Pete, um, one of the things that you talked about was the arts community there. And I think in addition to a robust um, airport and international connections and other, I believe that you you believe that uh, an important part of the economic uh, development and quality of life of a community is about its arts community. So you were recently instrumental in starting the Tampa Bay Arts Alliance. Tell us about that. Yes, the Tampa Arts Alliance. Tampa Arts Alliance. already has a St. Pete Arts Alliance and a Clearwater Arts Alliance, and there's a a Tampa Bay regional group, and we're partnering with all of them. But just from an economic development point of view, um, in St. Pete, what as as in other cities, what we found is first of all, there's the industry of the arts. There's a there's a sculptor named Mark Ailing in the Warehouse Arts District in St. Pete. He has nine workers. He creates an idea and they uh, build his sculptures for him that he sells all over the country. So it's an actual industry and business. Uh, the other thing is we see people like from Jable. Um, having drinks with um, uh, people who are artists, and together they come up with new ideas for new products that are that are changing the way these huge international companies operate. The other thing is that programmers, sorry, companies that require um, high level programming, they tell us many times their best and brightest programmers are musicians and artists, and they won't live in a community that does not have a robust art scene. Not only that they can go watch at a place like Mahaffey Theater or Strass Center, but that, that they can actually participate. And the other thing with um, high level workers like that some of the people in St. Pete will invite them on a Friday night and interview them on a Monday morning. And what that does is uh, by Monday morning, they're sold on the community. And Tampa has a very powerful art scene. Um, it was undercover for about 14 years. And what we're trying to do is bring everybody out and, and connect everyone and uh, show that it's okay to support the arts, that the arts are important. And the Tampa Arts Alliance is trying to make those connections. And one of the things I've noticed having lived in both cities is that Tampa's arts uh, community is a little more uh, dispersed around the city and the county, whereas uh, St. Pete's is a little more focused on the warehouse district, Kenwood, downtown. It must create a little more challenge in Tampa trying to bring people together because they're spread out well, among different neighborhoods. The other thing is in St. Pete, and this was by design back in the 90s, it's a part of everything in St. Pete. Everybody in economic development knows that it's an, an important part of the strategic advantage of St. Petersburg as, a, as, a, as an economic engine. And in Tampa, um, we're trying to do the same thing. Many people understand the arts are important, but some people think it's separate from everything else, and it really should be connected to everything. It helps build our culture and identity. Um, our uniqueness, and also um, it helps build industries. Now, you moved uh, your uh, firm from downtown Tampa to Ybor City, which, you know, for a long time was kind of the the center where a lot of artists were living. You had studios there, you had galleries there, 
and then bars kind of took over those spaces. And now we're seeing a few more uh, artists and studios there. Um, what is your relationship? Why did, first of all, why did you move your office to Ebor City? Because Ebor is really becoming the um, innovation and creative hub of Tampa. How long ago was it that you moved to the office? Three there? years ago. Three years ago. And so I, I love downtown Tampa also, but uh, Ebor is becoming the creative hub of Tampa. There's so many exciting things happening there, and not just in real estate, but with the people doing things. Some of the owners of the properties back in the 80s and 90s that raised the rent so the bars could come in, they now regret it, and they understand that it, they should have helped keep the artists there. Smart communities understand that, that art and artists are not a stage in gentrification. They're part of uh, a vital community where people want to live and work and play near art. And so the, um, there are several folks who own big chunks of property in Ebor. One of them is Gerald Shaw with, with his partners. And they're allocating about six blocks of uh, Ebor to the arts. And they're still evolving how they're going to deal with it. But uh, Tempest has, is in the process of moving back into the Crest mm -hmm. building. There's the Ebor Arts Colony. And once a month, we have a group called the Ebor Ad Hoc Arts Group, where we meet, um, tr again, trying to organize the, the Ebor arts supporters and artists to make sure we grow and identify what's happening there. We went to a terrific uh, arts tour there just a couple of weeks ago, uh, went through some of the studios, went to the Crest Building, hadn't seen those studios. It's pretty impressive what's going on there now. Yeah, the Ebor Art Walk was a result of these breakfast that we've been putting together over the last few months. And just in, in a sign of regionalism, we have uh, in the next meeting of the Ebor Arts Group, we have um, Peter Kagiyama from St. Pete coming to talk mm -hmm. about his book, For the Love of Cities. And we also have two representatives of the Warehouse Arts District in St. Pete. And when is that meeting? Uh, can, November can, can 30th. Any, can anybody attend? Uh, yeah, just um, Google me and email me and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the details. <laughs> it is at 8 o'clock in the morning. You do do your events very early, which for us two retirees <laughs> is a little rough, but <laughs> but that's okay. Um, when we come back, uh, let's take a break real quick, and then we'll come back, and we've got some text messages and emails to read, and um, we'll start talking a little bit about your work on the Tampa City Council. This is WMNF Tampa. You're listening to Wavemakers. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jennifer, and I just met the match. My husband and I are longtime listener sponsors of WMNF. We love the diversity of shows like The Soul Kitchen and Mo Blues Monday, which is dance night at our house, even for our retriever. WMNF is independent community radio, a rare and precious jewel, the future of which is worth endowing. We've made our investment in WMNF's future. Will you join us in helping WMNF meet a matching grant from the Community Foundation of Tampa Bay? Visit WMNF.org slash meet the match today. And if you love WMNF, consider making a donation to that endowment. That'll keep us on the air for quite a bit longer. So um, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest is Tampa City Council member Bill Carlson. We have an email from David Bryant. Um, he's got a question. I'm going to read his email. Bill Carlson is a great guest. He wants to know about heart. What can we do to cause a coup d'etat at heart? Um, it seems to be perpetually mismanaged, and now there's a scandal that a top heart executive was secretly moonlighting for the New Orleans Transit Agency. And the current CEO at Heart, Adelie Grand, has New Orleans Transit connections too. What the heck? It's time to clean house at Heart and start fresh, or let PSTA take over. What do you think about that, Bill? I'm I'm not personally involved in Heart. I watch it from the outside, like everyone else. Um, they're their own entity, and I don't sit on the board. Um, if you Google them, there have been a lot of issues over the last twenty or so years. And now that the uh, transportation amendment uh, has. Um, uh, 
failed. Uh, they're going to have fewer resources, and they're already laying people off. So what do you think the future of transit in Tampa is going to be? I think the, the part that we can control right now, because there's not any money for transit, is planning. And um, uh, an idea that I proposed um, three years ago based on advice from people like Linda Salsena and Della Costa is um, neighborhood commercial districts. And so if you look at the cities that are successful, they build commercial at least local commercial, and then they build housing, and then they build other kinds of industrial. And they, in the middle of it, they build um, transportation nodes. And so if we if we start planning now for building livable communities and livable neighborhoods, then um, it, it, then eventually we can overlay the transit in whatever form. But right now we have a problem that most places in the city to get to a grocery store, you have to get in your car and drive for 10 minutes. We need to change that. Imagine if you could if if 80% of the people in the city could walk a couple blocks and get to a duckweed or, or some small grocery store. And actually, that's a nice segue to talk a little bit about um, affordable housing because there's such a, a, a link between land use, affordable housing, transit, transportation, and those issues. Um, and in fact, we had um, Tatiana Morales, and we posted this on Facebook, wants to know, um, wants asked if she could hear from you your opinions on the housing crisis in Tampa and what policies you'd like to put in place to address it. There was an effort to get rent control in place in Tampa. Um, you were opposed to that. Talk to us a little bit about why you were opposed to that and what you think some of the answers are to the affordable housing um, issues in Tampa. Yeah, the first thing on rent control if you live have lived in a city that has rent control or a state that has rent control, it's different than what Florida allows. Florida, state of Florida preempts it and doesn't allow it. And if you try to do it, they sue you. Um, Orlando passed it and they're, they're maybe at risk of losing $5 million. My argument is that if we can't really do it the way people want to do it, um, let's find other solutions. And besides everything else that's been happening, now we have a huge influx of people coming from other states. Somebody asked me the other day, why should we build housing for people moving from other states? And I said, it's not for them, it's for us, because uh, if if the people growing up here, like my kids can't come back because they can't afford housing, then it, it doesn't help our community. Uh, we had, the years ago, we had the Great Recession, um, two mayors ago, and then the last administration tore down affordable housing instead of building new and, and focused on downtown instead of neighborhoods. And so... This, this administration and this city council have been working closely the last three years to try to address the affordable housing issue. If you ask um, Tampa Housing Authority, there's an official list of 25,000 on mm-hmm. the waiting list, but the unofficial list is 50,000. And there's no way in the next 10 or 20 years we can build that much. And so we're trying to put every resource we can toward it. The big thing that I did was um, two, two and a half years ago, sitting as a CRA board member, I proposed that we spend 30% of all the CRA money on affordable housing. That would be 15 to 20 million a year, which is, I think, more than what the county's been spending even. And CRAs um, are community redevelopment areas that are special districts where all the um, property, not a good chunk of the property tax revenues are, are... Spent directed that back district. into that district, if I said that correct. Right. I think I said that right. And, and we're hitting resistance. What happened is two years ago after we proposed that, and I think it passed unanimously, the staff never implemented it. They never even told anybody outside our board. And we just discovered this uh, recently. And so now um, it's coming back up in our December CRA meeting. Uh, but some folks in the community believe that 
that the CRA money should be spent to subsidize developers instead of things like affordable housing. Well, and the CRAs are really intended to address blight. That's what they're supposed to be about. Um, well, yeah. and the other thing is that the CRAs are actually, the city council oversees the CRAs, right? Yeah, the mayor, the way it's set up legally, the mayor's not involved, it's just the city council. But the staff we use is outsourced from the administration. And so we 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 technically have authority over them, but we we actually can't force them to do anything. They should have, for example, on this, implemented it two years ago. But there's a big philosophy shift in CRAs. Um, if you believe that CRA money should be spent to subsidize developers, uh, then you won't want anything to be spent on solving slum blight and affordable housing, which is actually what's written into the into the legislation. Subsidizing developers is not written into legislation. Yeah, because isn't the Channel District a CRA? It's so hard, downtown. It's, it's hard to look at that and say, oh, there's blight. We need to go clean up that blight. That blight has been cleaned up. The um, other thing I tried to do, we have about $43 million a year in the CRA districts. And the, in downtown and channel district, there's no slum and blight. So a couple of years ago, I tried to end both of those. Not We need the ones in East Tampa, West Tampa, other places. But in downtown and channel district, I tried to end them. And I represent South Tampa. But I said, how about if we move this money to... Um, uh, parts of New Tampa that desperately need it, move it to um, Sulphur Springs, move it to East Tampa. And I didn't get any votes for it. It was six to one against. What about, that's that's an idea of coming up, a, a means for coming up with funding to invest in affordable housing. But what about things like um, requiring a certain percentage of multifamily housing to be affordable when you're building, when they're building big um, condos and apartment buildings, um, and then also um, accessory dwelling units, mother-in-law units, that sort of thing, which is something that, uh, some zoning issues that are moving through city council. So those are What's your thoughts on those approaches, land use and zoning issues, uh, approaches towards and, and permitting approaches towards affordable housing? So as I understand this state law, you can't mandate that some someone would build affordable housing. You have to incentivize them. Incentivize it. And so if you, if you say, look, you can get bonus density if you build affordable housing, that's something that we're looking at right now. Uh, the other thing is, is just to directly subsidize it. And there are ways that, that we're looking at it. One of the, the other idea you mentioned about zoning is back to understanding how neighborhoods work. Um, along the corridors, along the transit hubs, we should have higher density. And so we're also looking at trying to figure out how to, how to address that because the more volume we put on the table, the better, the better we can address these issues. Because I think you represent South Tampa and there's a lot of resistance in South Tampa to some of the increases in density that would be required to provide some of this uh, affordable housing, right? Yeah, especially uh, the further south you go in South Tampa, uh, we have um, major traffic problems, major flooding, and people are worried every time there's a storm that comes through, they feel like they're in danger of not being able to get out of the peninsula. And we also have historic communities that are concerned about how these would be implemented there. It doesn't mean that they're against um, the ADUs. It just means that they want more time to look at them. But there is no doubt that we have a housing crisis here. And we also have uh, an income crisis. And one of the things that you did as a city council member was create the Tampa scorecard uh, where you are trying to pull together numbers that reflect the reality of the uh, Tampa economy as opposed to the um, booster Chamber of Commerce view of our economy. You know, it's always beautiful here. Uh, but sometimes it's not so beautiful for folks. So what is the Tampa scorecard intended to do and what does it show? Yeah, well, one of the ways that 
places like Singapore and other cities around the world um, succeed is that they look at their real numbers and they look at the numbers that other cities use to compare themselves. And most of the numbers that we look at in our region are regional numbers. We don't look at city by city numbers. And so I worked with um, the former dean of the College of Business at USF and some of his professors and students to put together tampascorecard.com. And uh, we're in the process of updating it right now. The last numbers are from 2019. But what it shows is that during, by the way, going back to housing, the, the ultimate fix for housing is to help people earn more money. If people earn more money, they can afford their rent increases and they can afford the, the better house. What's happening is that we have um, people moving from other cities where they made more money and they think our houses are cheap, so they're jacking up the prices. We need to help our people earn more money. And so if you look at the numbers, uh, what it says is that our disparities uh, uh, between rich and poor are horrible in Tampa. During most of the, the last 10 years, during the greatest economic boom in American history, the middle class in Tampa, for the most part, shrank. And it didn't in St. Pete and other places because St. Pete, since 96, um, has been focused on ending these disparities. One of the things I say is if you look at the disparity between men and women in St. Pete, it's $3,000 a year. In Tampa, it's 9000 The disparity between blacks and whites in St. Pete is 15000 a year. In Tampa, it's twenty one. The statewide home ownership rate is 65%. St. Pete is 58 and Tampa is 48 our numbers are ridiculously low because we're not measuring the right things. What has driven Tampa is what I call the edifice complex. It is, <laughs> we measure success by the pretty new buildings that are going up. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is let's do like St. Pete and other cities have done. Let's focus on who's going to live in the buildings and who's going to um, start businesses and grow their businesses in these buildings, not just building the buildings themselves. And how do you do that? How do you get these jobs? Because I've been hearing about this ever since I moved to Tampa. We're going to get these these high-skilled, high-paying jobs. And, and it just doesn't seem to happen. Although now I'm, I'm reading a lot more stories about tech entrepreneurs uh, moving into Tampa, companies being started. Uh, we have we spend a lot of tax money on economic development. Have an economic development corporation. What what's the solution? To those this? kinds of incentives don't work. And sure, cities do those around the world. But when you're bidding for jobs, it's a race to the bottom to see who's going to give the most money. And in the in the long term, those those jo- those Things don't work out, and most of the jobs that these organizations bring are, are ones that uh, that would have come to the city anyway. Because people want a high quality of life. People have been moving to Florida because they like the lifestyle, not because uh, we're giving them incentives. But the ultimate thing is to go to a place like East Tampa, and instead of looking at it as an opportunity for gentrification, we need to look at it as a place where we can enhance the quality of life, the history, unique history, and rich culture of the people in East Tampa, and mm-hmm. then help people start businesses. And if we can help people start businesses, something like 80% of the jobs in the United States are from uh, small businesses. If we help people start their own businesses, that's how we build uh, intergenerational, multi-generational wealth. Well, uh, in order to accommodate all this growth, we're going to need more water. And uh, for several administrations, probably dating back to when Sandy Friedman was mayor, the city has been trying to figure out what to do with 50 million gallons of highly treated wastewater, 50 million gallons a day, thank you, of highly treated wastewater that is being dumped into Tampa Bay every day. Um, So the city has been trying to come up with different ways of dealing with this water. Uh, The latest, it used to be called Toilet to Tap. Now it's called the Pure Project for Purify Usable Resources for the Environment, which you are 
adamantly opposed, uh, as well as the Sierra Club. And what this what this would do is take the treated wastewater and put it back into our drinking water, basically. Through at the hills through the Hillsborough River, or but tell us, can you tell us why you're opposed to that project, and what is your solution to dealing with that water and also increasing Tampa's water supply? Yeah, and going back in time in the '90s. They were what were called the water wars, where mm-hmm. the counties and cities in our region were suing each other. They didn't get along. Leaders like Ed Tranchik and um, and others got together and, and ended the water wars by creating a thing called Tampa Bay Water. And for disclosure, I worked with them back then on doing that. Um, <clears throat> since then, Tampa Bay has been an example for the world. In fact, uh, 15 or so years ago, I hosted the Singapore prime minister who came here to learn about our water system. And... And the people who worked with Tampa would have gone all over the world explaining why we are uniquely a region that doesn't have a water shortage. We have a 20-year plan and a 10-year supply with lots of other supply on the on the on the on the um, line. We don't we don't have a, a water shortage like other places do because we have a regional system and a regional network. For some reason, Tampa has tried to go their own the last few years. Uh, one administration tried to end Tampa Bay Water, even though it's an amazing success story. Why would you try to end something that ended the water wars just so you can control your own water sources? Instead, let's cooperate. Let's all be part of the same region. And if somebody thinks that, somebody in the city of Tampa told me three years ago, why should we care if St. Pete has water? And I said, have you seen the bridge? People going back and forth every day. People live in one place and work in the other and they entertain in different places. And in Pasco well, the- County, they were having serious environmental problems with sinkholes, and right. lakes draining. The water doesn't pay attention to the city and county boundaries. <laughs> yeah, <It doesn't>. people, <laughs> people mostly don't either. So the quick on, first of all, we need to maintain regionalism and re- maintain this system that is uh, one of the best in the world. And Tampa Bay Water supports this or does not support this project? It's on their, it has been traditionally on their long-term list, but if it was the safest, best, most economical alternative, they would have done it already, except that the city of Tampa for two or three years told them not to look at it anymore. But for example, Tampa Bay Water has a desal plant, which despite what some people think has been working fine and is not at full capacity because it's the most expensive source of water. The problem with this, uh, treating the 15 million gallons a day, in, f- in 20 years, City of Tampa net of conservation will need 4 million gallons a day. And right now we use about 83. And this will treat 50 million gallons a day and they want to start it right away. And it will cost anywhere but between 2 and $6 billion and potentially double or triple our water rates. And people already are feeling the hit from increased water rates and stormwater rates and taxes. And they don't want us to raise the rates. And why should we spend $6 billion on something we don't need? Right. And the way they're going to do it has the concern of Sierra Club and others because they're, instead of doing what 9 out of 10 cities in the world do, which is use reverse osmosis, they want to use an experimental system that could hurt the aquifer. Um, we got um, uh, a phone call. We got um, John from Port Ritchie who's on the line. And John, I'm going to take your call in just a second. And if you would like to call in and pose a question to our guest, Tampa City Council Member um, Bill Carlson, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or you can send an email to dj at wmnf.org. Um, John in Port Ritchie, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Well, thanks for the show. Uh, about the water, <clears throat> I had an idea that why couldn't we pump it up north to where the uh, water naturally enters the aquifer and let it filter through it naturally and get into the aquifer that way? And you can also do something where uh, you can also make it almost port- uh, potable or make it potable and then ship it up there and let it filter in instead of just shooting it straight down after you make it potable. I mean, it's going to add to the cost because you got to do pipes and pumps and stuff. But 
I'm wondering if that's just a better way to to clean the water and to have people use it. So, that, you know, the, I think it's a lot of mental thing when you say the toilet to tap. But if you do it that way, I think it might be a little bit more palatable to people. It, yes, it's toilet to toilet to, to the na- nature to tap. What do you think about that, Bill? Any thoughts on that? Well, we've been asking the Thanks, engineers John. at the city to look at other alternatives besides this experimental system that they want to implement. And so far, that hasn't come up in one of the options. The bottom line is we don't need this water right now. And it is... Uh, we believe, I think Sierra Club and others, we believe that it is a beneficial use as it is right now. And the, the city is putting it out into the bay. And although it still has some nutrients in it, it's cleaner than the Hillsborough River water. And it's a small, relatively small amount compared to the bay. But the bottom line is we don't need this. Why should we spend up to $6 billion and double or triple people's water rates for something we're not going to need for 100 years? The entire region might need 50 million gallons in 100 years. But it would be like saying today that in 100 years, we're going to need an office building for 2,000 people. And so instead of building what we need today, we're going to build it for for 2,000 people 100 years in the future and pay for a building all that time. It doesn't make sense. We've got an email from Rich in Brooksville who is commenting on your um, remark, Bill, about needing to raise wages in Tampa. He says, higher wages nationwide will allow all people to live the American dream of home ownership. Wages have stagnated since 1977. No real raises ever happened without proper incomes. This will never change. So he is somebody who agrees with you. And then we have um, Bubba wants to know, Bill, what do you think about Airbnb in the city of Tampa. I'm in Seminole Heights and I'm not pleased with having an Airbnb next door. I never expected to be uh, living next to a hotel. Yeah, Airbnb and their um, their competitors went to the state a few years ago and preempted what local government can do in regard to re- um, regulating Airbnbs. If, if someone is disturbing... Um, this uh, if disturbing the public with with loud sounds or other kinds of things that are code violations, then the city can go out and regulate it. Um, but if there were laws in place, there are some rules in place before that state law was passed, and so some of them are grandfathered in. But for the most part, the state regulates it, just like they now do trees and and some yeah. other issues. That a lot of the issues that we're dealing with that people are not happy with have to do with the state. And uh, what some groups do when they come to us is they say, well, we want you to pass something that goes against the state. And we say, well, if we do that, we're going to get sued. And some pe- folks are fine with that because if we get sued, then it'll get publicity. And and my argument is let's change the state instead of changing, letting cities get sued. Let's focus on on uh, getting better state policy. You know, we're talking, we're talking a little bit about environmental issues. And one thing that I'm curious about, because this is, again, zoning is is a purview of the Tampa City Council. It's a place where you guys have a lot of, of power. Um after Hurricane Ian, you know, we were looking at, is Tampa ready? How is Tampa ready for that kind of a hurricane that might, that one day probably will hit here? Um, what about building all of those homes, multifamily homes and single family homes, whatever they are, in these coastal high hazard areas, these areas that are prone to flooding, that are likely to be underwater um, sometime in the next 20 or 30 years? Like um, the West Shore Marina District. And that keep on building. So what, what are your thoughts on that, Bill? How does Tampa address that issue of sustainability, resiliency, and the climate crisis? Yeah, and some of that that has to do with land use, I have to be careful. I can't talk about anything that might touch on a, a current case. There, uh, Sometimes when we reject a development proposal, the developers will sue, and some of those cases are going through. Uh, but in general, um, this city council has been very progressive at asking for um, environmental um, 
has been in implementing environmental regulation and issues. Um, we've been looking at planning and zoning around the coastal high hazard areas. Uh, but as we were starting to look at it, the mayor appointed the first ever sustainability officer in the city. And that office came up with a plan that has 58 things in it. Most of it is a compilation from other things that were already done. Uh, but we're continuing to ask the questions, what, what's going to happen when half of the peninsula of South Tampa is covered with water? How are we going to address that? Because that's what my constituents want to know. My constituents want to know why are our streets flooded? And the city's spending billions of dollars on stormwater response, but none of the plans for that anticipated uh, sea level rise. Right. And so it would, despite all the money that's being spent, we're going to have to go back and relook at it. And that's part of what the sustainability officer has been doing. Unfortunately, um, he's been pulled into the toilet tap project and... So I'm hoping that he will be able to get back to sustainability soon. And, and I've I've heard that one of the problems uh, with prohibiting um, uh, building in the coastal high hazard areas is that that's taking away the value of somebody's property. That that's one of the issues why why we can't just say no, you cannot build in the whole coastal high hazard areas. People who have the property there that we're expecting expecting a certain kind of economic gain from that um, would be. That would be taken away from if somebody. Them. If somebody has an entitlement already, we can't take that away without compensating them, and then they have to agree to the compensation. Um, so, if, if if somebody has an entitlement that was approved a long time ago for two hundred units, they we pretty much can't take that away because we can't afford to pay them. But there are places that are doing that, starting to talk about managed retreat and how do they purchase properties? What do they do to take property? You so know, what, to- what we can do is look at it going forward. And one of the challenges with development is that. Um, the way you make sometimes make money in development is you buy a property that has a certain entitlement and then you pay consultants to help you get a better entitlement. And what I've said from city council is the expectation of entitlement is not an entitlement. Mm-hmm. Just because you want it to be better or more units doesn't mean you're going to get it. And so we are trying to address those issues. There also is going to be, I think, a top-to-bottom look at the uh, land use code, but that's going to take a couple years to review. Um, we got a couple um, callers on the line. So we have... Um uh, Larry in Sarasota, who wants to talk about affordable housing. Larry in Sarasota, you're on the line. Thank you for taking my call. My my question is on back on affordable housing and rent. Uh, you know, being a landlord, I understand that people only make a certain amount of money, and I'm. But when my increases occur from the state and in. You know, I have to pass those along. I'll give you a specific example. I've got, uh, and this isn't Tampa, but I'm sure the landlords of Tampa go through the same thing. You know, my property taxes are gone since I've owned the property from $700 per unit to $2,500 per unit. They're not big fancy houses. They're nice little houses. They're nice homes. The people that live there are working people, people that we need. And uh, so between the property insurance and the taxes, I'm at, over you know almost four hundred and eighty dollars per month. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money, you know. And I and I have to I have to make some money. I have repairs and whatnot. So, you know, do property taxes have to go up every time more people move to Florida? And uh, you know, it's all about supply and demand, and the values go up, and it's passed on to all of us landlords. So, um, what's your take on that, Bill? That Larry is saying that. His his costs are going up, and that's part of the reason why he ends up having to raise his rent. He's just trying to cover his costs. Thanks for the call, Larry. Yeah, that's why we need to work on helping people start their own businesses and get getting higher paid jobs because these numbers are going up. And 
and like I said before, the way that the way that the state of Florida pro- prohibits or precludes cities from passing rent control, um, the the narrow way that you might be able to do it would be devastating for people who uh, who might be renting because landlords like Larry who would be looking at their numbers if that was going to go into place for 12 months which is all that would maybe be allowed if voters voted for it they would probably double triple their rates because they would be afraid they wouldn't be able to raise in the future um, we've got um, another caller on line we've got Ron and Ruskin Ron you're on the line what's on your mind uh, yeah hi there uh, for Bill when the resolution to decriminalize abortion came up in the city council, you had a big objection to it because you thought it would be misleading to people because they would think that the resolution would have some sort of like legally binding effect. So, um, and so it was implied that you would be supporting a, uh, ordinance that would, uh, in effect do the same thing, but would have a little bit more teeth, I guess, so to speak. And then when that came up, you appeared to just reject it outright. So I was just wondering why you kind of uh, seemed to totally walk back anything that you said about supporting the decriminalization ordinance. I was in favor of an ordinance, and what came back to us was a charter amendment. And the technical way that you get a charter amendment through is to pass an ordinance, but that was not what I was proposing. And when the when the charter amendment came to us, <clears throat> it was brought up in new business Excuse me. It was brought up a new business. It was not a scheduled discussion item, and a new business typically it's ceremonial. So if somebody says they want to give a commendation, we say yes and we move on. This was presented as a multi-page document, and none of us had read it. Uh, I had seen an earlier draft, but I had not seen that draft. And <clears throat> I, I asked for um, another week to review it, and the proposer, uh, my colleague Lynn Hertak, who feels passionate about this issue, said no. And without I, having, I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but Lynn Hertak. Uh, yeah, she's passionate about this issue, but it was also my understanding that this was an issue that you too were uh, passionate or invested in in some way because, I mean, it affects all of us. It's yeah, the, the, the two things about... It's freedom. So are you not passionate about the issue? The, the two things about that night was that we were not given a chance to read the document. And number two, it was not an ordinance. It was a charter amendment. Okay. Thanks for the call, Ron. Really appreciate it. Um, is it going to come back? Is it possible that that will come back? I'm not it could, but something like that needs to be scheduled. The problem is when you bring it up a new business and nobody's had a chance to read it, um, <clears throat> they could, they, somebody could propose, people in new business can propose whatever they want. But if you're going to propose something that requires a lot of thought and also for, legal had not reviewed this document either. And we, we can't approve something spur of the moment. It needs to be scheduled, and we all need to be able to review it, and legal needs to be reviewed. Right. And we need public comment. Right. Uh, there was not a chance for the public to weigh in either. And so I was not against the idea itself. I was against the way it was presented to us. And if it comes back, hopefully it will follow all the processes that are necessary to give it a fair hearing. Um, we have an email from Marissa Griffin <laughs> from the Swamp Craft Studio, and she wants to know, she's got two questions. How can artists best help our local neighborhoods? And and any thoughts on reliable and safe um, public transportation improvements? And she says, next time there's an Eber art walk, please come to the factory on Fifth Avenue. We're a community-based art studio and would love to have you visit. So how can artists best help local neighborhoods and thoughts on reliable and safe public transportation improvements, Bill? Um, I, hope that, <clears throat> I hope that neighborhoods will look at their own identity <clears throat> and figure out what it is that's unique about their neighborhoods. And a part of that is the natural environment, the style of homes, uh, the architecture, uh, part of it is the art that's there. And so if 
if uh, neighborhoods can get together and encourage certain kinds of public art in and around their neighborhoods, they can uh, try to put on events that will celebrate the arts and, um, and, and artists can be involved in it. Hopefully there will be artists in every neighborhood. Um, we, um, and public tra- uh, transportation, safe public transportation. Any thoughts on that, how we make that happen now that we do not have well, you the... you mentioned <laughs> earlier that it's related to housing and you're going to have to increase well, densities in certain corridors. Yeah, and it's, it's looking at planning. We need to do planning. Um, when we started three and a half years ago, there was one part-time planner in the city. I think there are two now. But we have to do real planning, and it can't be around... The way planning worked before is a developer comes to town, we, the city gives them incentives, and then we put a planner on it to help them figure out how to do their project because the way the city makes money is from property taxes. Instead, what we need to do is look build planning around people instead of buildings. Planning has to set up be set up around uh, building a higher quality of life for our people. And naturally, that would include um, having hubs for transportation that then you can connect by whatever technology you have. Um, we also have an email from Stephanie who um, says um, housing costs are the genie out of the bottle. The key will be battling transportation costs. What is Councilman Carlson's take on combating transportation costs in order to help with freeing up funds for housing costs? Hmm. Um, the the issue right now is there's no money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. There's not there's, enough money to build sidewalks. I, there's I, no I, money for either one. Yeah. But the, the, in anticipation of all for transportation passing, the city has not raised its roads budget in three years. So the roads budget for the entire city is $5 million. And I think the sidewalk budget is 600000 And we've been pushing for more money, but the city budget has more than doubled during that time. But but now that all for transit didn't pass, we're going to have to look at more serious solutions for it. We can't just rely on gas tax. Um, in the few minutes that we have left, let's talk a little bit about um, elections, Tampa City Council, and, and a little bit about politics. So um, the midterm elections last week showed just basically a red tide in Hillsborough County. Um, does t- City Council is a nonpartisan, those are nonpartisan races, but... Do you see any impact on um, those races coming up in 2023? And again, even though they are on nonpartisan races, I believe all of the uh, the city council members are registered as Democrats. As is the mayor. As is the mayor. So what do you think about that? Does that midterm tell you anything about the city elections coming up next year? I think on a city level, what I hear, because I'm out in the community constantly, what I'm hearing Every day is the most important issue is is um, how the city is interacting with neighborhoods, how it's planning for neighborhoods, protecting neighborhoods, helping neighborhoods, and the people. Um, people, especially during times like COVID, walked their dogs down the street. They went to the parks. Um, they looked around their neighborhoods and they realized that things were falling apart because so much money had been spent on downtown rather than neighborhoods. And there are a lot of other issues that are very important, many of which the city has no control over, little control. Uh, but the area we do have control of is how we can help our neighborhoods. And so I think Republican or Democrat, any candidate has got to be able to talk to neighborhoods about how they're going to help them. So you're not concerned? Uh, you have not filed to run for re-election. No. Can you want to go ahead and announce that you're going to run for re-election I'm, on our show today? <laughs> no, my plan, my plan is to uh, file. The, the reason why I've waited is because um, uh, the way the, a lot of the money that comes in and, and you can ask for money or people just donate. But a lot of the money that comes in is from developers. And I want to wait um, 
so that that time is as short as possible. Well, uh, well, most I of my money, most yep. of my money came yeah. in from individuals, uh, not developers. But so I don't want to, I don't want to take money and then have to turn around and vote on something. So I'm trying to make the window for election as short as possible. So you've been on, you've a longtime fixture of the Tampa Bay community and a leader on both sides of the bay, um, and you're finishing up your first term as an elected official. So how does your the idea of being an elected official compare to the reality of it? What is as you expected? What was different from you from you what you expected and what's the most difficult part of it? Um I think it's what I expected, but um the only reason I ran is because I wanted to bring good government back to Tampa. I didn't think the government was run very well um in, in the previous administration. Um too much money spent on downtown uh Julian Lane Park, I think it was $34 million and it. We had a park and then after $34 million, we had a park. And of that $34 million, $12 million, it was for a boathouse for rich kids from the Northeast to come ride their boats. And if you compare that to the entire parks budget of the city, it's uh, $5 million. We could have rejuvenated lots of parks with that $12 million or the $34 million. And I, I, have, I got in because I want to try to solve some of the problems that we're all concerned about and that people have called in about. And part of it, though, is that that there's a lot of waste and money. The city is building a, if you add all the numbers together, $220 million office building right now. $108 million plus $71 million in interest plus 20 or $40 million in, in O&M over 30 years. And why would we spend so much on an office building? I don't understand. And it didn't go out for bid, a proper bid. Had we saved 5% by taking out for bid, we uh, could have doubled the the um, uh, the parks budget for a year. Well, you know, uh, Tampa has a, a very strong mayor, former government, probably the most powerful mayor in Florida. And there's always been tension between the mayor and the city council because the mayor, whoever it is, likes to have their way. And we have seen things this year like we've never seen before, the tension between the mayor and the city council. You have said publicly you feel like the mayor's staff has been targeting you and Orlando Goods and John Dingfelder, who resigned from the city council because you have been questioning some of their priorities. So how are things now? It's as worse as, as bad as it's ever been, if not worse. Um, <clears throat> if you don't already, please read um, Justin Garcia's stories in Creative Loafing because he's the only one who's covering it on a regular basis. Uh, but the administration staff members probably on city time were complicit in the ousting of John Dingfelder because he was pro-neighborhood and pro-community. Um, they viciously went after uh, Orlando Goods, and we know that staff were involved in that. <clears throat> staff, I had the city attorney slander me in the media, and um, we, we, it, this is not the way politics should be done. City should not be run with dirty politics, and people who are being paid by the city should not be engaged in dirty politics, especially not in city time. If you want to do it after hours, I guess you can do it. But as, I, as I've told the administration, if my legislative aide did opposition research on the mayor during city time, I would fire her in a second. But somehow it's okay for the mayor's staff to do that and nobody's doing anything. And what effect does that have on, on uh, policies? Because really in the end, what the voters want is for things to get done. So I think there, there, are, there are city council members who are scared. And um, we'll just do whatever the administration wants. And that's not what they were elected to do. We are elected to represent what the public wants, not what the mayor wants. One of the issues that you've clashed with her on is the Citizens Review Board, which is supposed to be a check on the police department and their internal affairs investigations. And you were trying to get that board the power to subpoena uh, basically anyone other than police officers. They can't do it under state law. 
Um, and yet it looked like it was going to pass, and it didn't pass. Well, there was heavy lobbying that day. I think I presented about 15 charter possible charter amendments, and every one of them failed because the administration heavily lobbied. And I asked the administration to please respect the boundaries of, of the um, two uh, different branches of government. Well, because legally two, and ethically yeah. they can do it, but it doesn't yeah. mean that it's right. There's a there, there there are a couple of ways to amend the charter. One is through the city council can propose charter amendments. Uh, the charter review board can propose them any other way. And then the third way has been that city attorneys in the past have made opinions. We had one situation recently where a city attorney in 2018 wrote two paragraphs and essentially changed the charter. And I tried to correct that, and because of the mayor's lobbying, we couldn't even get a correction to that done. The the that's power where city council. Just to clarify that, that's where city council uh, has not been uh, uh, had any say in legal settlements, no matter the amount, and, and and they've just been approving it on their own. In the past, because I'm old, I covered <laughs> lots of city council meetings back uh, when I was a, a, a young uh, reporter, and that was uh, always on uh, the agenda. And you would closed door you, session. You go into closed door session, review it. Then you come out and you vote on the settlement. That never happens anymore. Yeah, can you imagine four years of settlements were signed without city council approval? Signed and paid without city council approval. And the charter clearly says that city council has to approve it. And so um, I've had to hire my own lawyers to look into the legal implications of this. Um, by the way, there's a because the city attorney's office illegally did not protect any of us um, and, and actually allegedly worked against us, um, it's well known John Dingfelder was at the point where he had spent tens of thousands of dollars of his own money and the city never reimbursed him. <clears throat> Orlando Goods has spent ten, probably tens of thousands of dollars just responding to subpoenas. I've spent about $25,000 and, and the, the, the position pays $53,000 a year. So anybody who wants to run for this office, if you try to do the right thing and you have an administration like this, you've got to be prepared to defend yourself and hire your own attorneys because, um, the um, what, what I've discovered is that the power in the city really is in the city attorney's office. If you can get the city attorney to agree with your opinion, then you have power over whatever you want. And in a lot of ways, it is a microcosm, I think, of what's happening nationally, that the way our our politics are working, so much of it is so litigious and and uh, and dirty. Um, Do you see any, any hope to, to improve relations with uh, Mayor Castor? In every meeting, I ask the chief of staff, please ask the mayor to come to us and call an end to this and, and tell, tell us that she wants to move forward without fighting. And as soon as she does that, uh, we can all move forward. But we cannot just sit back and let the administration attack us and try to throw us out of office. That's not respectable. It's not respectful of what the public wants. And it's dirty politics. We need to move beyond that. Our community deserves better than this. Um, well, Bill, thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks to everybody who called in. And we covered a lot of topics, and there's still a lot more to talk about. There's still a lot. We could definitely go a lot longer. Um, and uh, stay tuned. Up next is Harrison Nash, right after the headline news um, from NPR. Um, and also, don't forget, go ahead and go to WMNF.org and hit the tip jar and show your love both for um, WMNF and for Wavemakers. And be sure to tune in 9 o'clock Monday nights for Bob Seymour's new Jazz at Night show. It's oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. This is WMNF Tampa. Yeah.